Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the eating and drinking practice. Tonight we kick off our next practice. Our church, as many of you know, is built around this idea of apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. And in our frame, to apprentice unto Jesus is to organize your life around three basic goals. One, be with Jesus. Two, become like Jesus. And three, do what he did. Say that with me. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what he did. And really, a better way to say that third one is do what he would do if he were me. Yesterday on the planet, I saw somebody rocking that bracelet from the 90s, WWJD. Anybody remember that? Come on. There was somebody in the last gathering who was like, represent. It was awesome. Uh, What would, acronym for what would Jesus do? And I like that, but it's a bit unhelpful. Jesus was a single male first century Jewish rabbi. Like, how do you transpose that if you're like a single mom and you're like, how would Jesus breastfeed or whatever? It's just not... (laughs) all that helpful. Um, So I think a far better question that's similar but different is what would Jesus do if he were me? If he were a woman or a man or a high school student or in grad school or in residency or running a business or this or that or the other, what would Jesus do if he were he, if he were me, that really is the driving question of our apprenticeship. So be with, become like, and do. That's the frame. On that note, every few months we take on a practice from the life and teachings of Jesus. And we have practices aimed at all three of those goals in our running list. Practices like silence and solitude and prayer and fasting are aimed at that first goal of be with Jesus or what Jesus himself called abiding. These practices, or what are usually called the spiritual disciplines, are what a trellis is to a vine. They are structure, a set of practices to create space for the vine of our prayer life, really, our relationship to the Spirit, our awareness of and connection to God to grow up through the chaos of our life and in Jesus' language to bear fruit. Then we have practices aimed at become like Jesus, what we call emotionally healthy spirituality, practices like dealing with your past and discovering your identity and calling, and more recently, forgiving as we have been forgiven. And next up on the docket is our first practice ever in our journey so far over the last year or two that's aimed at that third goal of do what Jesus would do if he were you. And I feel like we're ready. Jesus put on display this rhythm of kind of retreat and return. He would retreat for prayer and fasting and silence and solitude and community, and then he would return to preach the gospel and usher in the kingdom of God. And that rhythm is the tension and the life and the balance that we are invited into as we we follow Jesus. On that note, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Our city is located right on the bleeding edge of post-Christian culture. Outreach Magazine recently called Portland the post-Christian frontier, which sounds like a Star Trek movie, but it's not. 
The language of post-Christian culture, if that's unfamiliar to you, don't feel bad. That's from a sociologist by the name of Philip Reef. He categorized Western history into three phases. Pre-Christian, think of, say, Celtic, Ireland or Scotland or England before the gospel where child sacrifice was the norm, where slavery was the norm. St. Patrick himself was enslaved by the Irish, where there were gods and goddesses behind every bush and tree. Then you move into Christian or really Christianized culture. There's no such thing as Christian culture. It's always a mix of Christian and pagan and then more recently Christian and secular ideas. But this is where the cultural norms pull and push you toward the way of Jesus, not away from it. So this is England 100 years ago. It's middle America in the 1950s. And then you move into post-Christian culture, of which our city is a great example. And the key thing to wrap your head around post-Christian culture, that doesn't mean that we've moved on from Christian culture. In fact, so many of the values and so much of the vision of our culture on both the left and the right is rooted, at least historically, and by process of thought and chronology in the way of Jesus. Equality, justice, justice, freedom against discrimination and inequality, the gap between rich and poor, so much of this is definitely not based on evolutionary psychology. In fact, it's in direct opposition and at odds with it. But it is based on Jesus' vision of what he called the kingdom of God, which was a socio-political vision. But the key thing that you need to get your head around with post-Christian culture is that it's a reaction against Christian culture. It's like the West rebellious teenager moment. That's why so many of our friends who don't follow Jesus are far more open to yoga or to quasi-Buddhist kind of mindfulness with some organic juice than they are to God, right? And even people who, that's why a lot of people are even more open to Islam or Judaism than they are to the way of Jesus because it's a reactionary kind of knee-jerk rebellion moment. And even if people aren't hostile toward Jesus, on a Sunday morning or even on a Sunday night, there are a million other places to be right now. You know that. You could be at the beach right now, like Instagramming the sunset or something like that. You could be down the street, you know, eating a late dinner at Tasting Alder or having a great beer at base camp or whatever your thing is. I mean, we live in a city where there's now a whole decade but we put in between adolescence and adulthood and we just call it brunch, you know? There's so many other places that you could be. Rosiah Butterfield, who's on our recommended reading, writes this. Let's face it. We have become unwelcome guests in the post-Christian world. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become an Orwellian nightmare. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply anymore. Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. I'm in my mid-30s, and really it's been the last decade or two, and for me that is so disorienting. It was this way, and now it's another. And if that rings true with you, you are not alone. And one of the questions that we have to ask is, how do we invite people to follow Jesus along with us in this post-Christian city? 
We have, you're here because most of us have come to experience life or what Jesus called life to the full in the reality of the kingdom. And God has put a love in our heart for our family, for our friends, for our neighbor, a barista, a coworker, somebody else at the gym. How do we invite people to experience the life that we love and enjoy every single day in a cultural milieu where there's hostility and it's not PC and we feel weird and awkward and so on? One option is we just don't, right? That was old school. We moved on from that. We just kind of turn our home or apartment into our castle and we wall up. And when we're in public, we just kind of keep our head down and keep quiet about what we believe. Another option is we just edit the way of Jesus to like update it for the progressive world. We take out all the bits and pieces that are not PC, which of course changes every five years, but are not up to date on that. Or is there an option C? I think there is. One that, a practice that transcends time and trend and in fact goes all the way back to Jesus himself. Take a look at Luke chapter 19, verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. Um, He was also a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Fun fact, by the way, that he, that in the original language in Greek, it's that pronoun he and he could not see over the crowd. It's ambiguous whether it refers to Zacchaeus or to Jesus. Ha <laughs> Sunday school, mind blown. <laughs> so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, get down here right now. I must stay at your house today. You're rich, I'm homeless, you do the math. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, gossip, backbite. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation, notice Jesus' choice of language, has come to this house. This man too is a son of Abraham. He's in the family of God. For the son of man came to seek and to save the law. Say that last line with me. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, it's easy in particular if like me, you grew up in the church to read this story in a cute, sentimental, kind of Sunday school-esque flannel board kind of way as if the point of the moral tale is, you know, Jesus loves short people too. But to the original audience, it was not cute, it was not funny, it was not sweet, it was dangerous. It was disruptive to the status quo. People began to whisper and backbite and gossip and talk for two reasons. One, let me just nerd out on you for a minute or two. One, Zacchaeus was a tax farmer, which in that society was the worst of the worst. Israel was occupied and oppressed by the Roman Empire. Tax farmers were Jews, not Romans, who sold out their countrymen. They were notoriously corrupt because they made a living by adding their own fee onto Rome's tax. But they were the ones who set the fee, and then they had the backup of the local Roman garrison to enforce it. 
So say you're Matthew or you're Zacchaeus, you're at your toll booth on the road into Capernaum. Here comes Peter, which is catch of fish for the day. You tax him. Rome's tax is something like 50%. And then you add on your own. Here's, let's actually make it 70%. And if you make the tax collector mad, he can just say, well, it's 80% today for you, Peter. And then he can enforce it at the point of a sword. You think our country is a political tinderbox. You can imagine how tax collectors were hated. In that culture, the two lowest rungs on the moral ladder, and every society has a moral ladder, were tax collectors and prostitutes. And who does Jesus eat with on a regular basis? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, again, I read that and I think Jesus is so rad. He's punk rock. He's stick it to the man. Like he's anti-fundamentalist, whatever it is. That's be- I read it that way because we don't have tax collectors anymore. We're not under the Roman Empire and IRS agents don't count. We do have prostitutes, but our culture is so hypersexualized that most of us feel very little about that reality. But transpose tax collectors and prostitutes in our society. Who are the bottom of the moral ladder in our society? What if Jesus were to eat with them? How would you feel if Jesus came on the scene today and you heard a story about Jesus eating dinner with a pedophile? Or what if he was over to lunch with somebody who was a white nationalist? Or what if you saw a video of Jesus eating dinner around a campfire in a cave with some ISIS terrorists in a mountain in Pakistan or Afghanistan? How would that make you feel? How does that thought experiment make you feel even now? Scared, angry, you can't do that, us versus them, good versus evil, how dare you, the line, like confused. That's exactly how people felt in that day. Secondly, meals meant more in that society than they do in ours. In every culture, meals are what the anthropologist Mary Douglas in her groundbreaking essay called boundary markers. They bring people together, but they also keep people apart. Think of the pre-civil rights restaurants in the South with a no blacks sign on the front door. Or in England, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Even in our laid-back, open-minded, progressive cities, still, as a general rule, most of us eat with people we're friends or family with. Most of us eat with people who are like us, who fall into the same basic socioeconomic stratum as us. A lot of us eat with people that are in the same ethnicity as us. This is true of all societies, but it was especially true of first century Jewish societies. New Testament scholars call this table fellowship. And here's the backstory, just to nerd out on you a little bit more. When Israel, if you know the story of the Old Testament, if you don't, that's fine. But 400 years before Jesus, Israel was dragged off into exile in Babylon, a thousand miles to the east. And when that happened, the temple in Jerusalem, which was the overlap between heaven and earth, the center of the Jewish faith, it was destroyed. The sacrificial system was put to an end with it, and the priesthood was wiped out. Now, Imagine you're now in Babylon, you live in a suburb of the city, you're a slave or a merchant or whatever. Have you ever read the Torah? You ever read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? There's a lot in there. How do you even obey half of the commands with no temple, no sacrificial system, and no priesthood? Have you read Leviticus? It's a bit tricky. You can't. And so the rabbis were ingenious. The rabbis basically had to reinvent Judaism. They didn't call it that at the time, but they had to re kind of orient the Jewish faith. And what they came up with was, all right, here's, here's the framework. Here's the new framework. Your home is the new temple. Your table is the new altar. The dad is the father of the house is the new priest. And the meal is the new sacrifice. 
That sounds kind of cool, except then the Pharisees come along. We forget that the Pharisees started out good. They were the descendants of Ezra, if you know that story in the Old Testament. Jesus himself, a lot of people think, was a Pharisee. And his like infighting was exactly that. It was insider critique. The Pharisees started out good, but eventually lost the plot line. The Pharisees' working theory was, listen, what got us into the mess of exile was sin, and what will get us out of the mess of exile is less sin or ideally no sin. For years later in Jesus' day, we forget that even though they are back in the land, first off, two-thirds of Israel is still outside of the land, Persia, Babylon, Egypt, all over the place. Only one-third are back in the land. And two, the Roman Empire is still in charge. So at least at an existential level, most first century Jews thought we are still in exile. How do we get out of it? And the Pharisees' hypothesis was, okay, if all Israel were to just keep the Torah for one day, just for 24 hours, that would unlock something, the Messiah. I would come back and end the exile and usher in the kingdom of God, right? Now, that sounds cool. So what they did was they upped the ante and they called for everybody, not just the priests, but for every Jew to live by the commands for the priests at the temple. Because after all, your home is the new temple, the table is the new altar, so on and so forth. Which again sounds kind of cool. Okay, up the ante on holiness. All right, I like that. It's like a reform movement. But if you know the commands about the priest, you know the commands about the temple, and I don't have time to get into this, that meant no Gentile or non-Jewish person was ever allowed in your house, much less at your table. Neither was anybody with special needs. Neither was anybody who was deformed. And most definitely not anybody who was a sinner, which was a way of saying not Torah observant. You see what's going on. All that to say, a rabbi in that culture, a teacher of the Torah, would never be caught dead in the home of somebody like Zacchaeus. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi writes this, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal, unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. One German theologian says it like this. In the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, or sisterhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. One theologian I read yesterday said that Jesus got himself killed because of the people he ate with, because he ate with all the wrong people. You see, for Rabbi Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker, but a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom, not a way to keep people out, but listen, a way to invite people in. 
Notice that last line in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, if you were in the original audience, first off, you would not read this and you would not read just one or two paragraphs at a time. You would hear this out loud. It's an oral society. There's no codex. You're 1,400 years away from Gutenberg. This existed on a document somewhere but was put to memory and then somebody would stand up and recite the whole thing in one sitting for you, your house church, whatever that is. And it's an oral society, so your ear is attuned to hear, and and, and they would repeat things. That was a way of saying, okay, this is really important. Now, when you heard that line, the Son of Man came, your ears would perk up. Because Luke's already used that phrase once before, and you would play connect the dots. For those of us that don't have this put to memory, just turn really fast to the left in your Bible to chapter 7. Let me show you the one other time that Luke uses that phrase. Take a look at chapter 7. Let's parachute right into the middle. Verse 33, Jesus is teaching, has this to say, for John the baptizer came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. Not, Not a very fun guy to party with, right? And you say, he has a demon, right? The son of man came. There's our phrase. The first part is the same, but notice the second half is different. The son of man came eating and drinking, verse 34. And then you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified or proved right by all her children. One of my favorite, I think that is my favorite one-liner of Jesus. Now, when one of the Pharisees, here's a story to illustrate it, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, right? There it is, academics, jargon, table fellowship. He went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life, we think that is a gracious way of saying who was a sex worker. When she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So imagine you're a sex worker in a hyper-conservative, male-dominated society. You don't go over to, like, the Pharisee's house, right? But she came there, the courage. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, poured perfume on them. By the way, again, in this culture, if you are a woman, you do not let your hair down in public ever. Some scholars, we don't know, but theorize that she's interacting with Jesus the only way that she knows how to interact with a man. 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, it was scandalous. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, never think a thought like that in your mind around Jesus. Jesus answered him, 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, Rabbi, he said. And then Jesus goes into a story, classic Jesus. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. So denarius was a day's wages. So about two years worth of income versus two or three months worth of income. So take your salary. Um, Some of you are like, I'm in school. I have a negative salary right now or whatever. But take your, those of you that are out of school, take your salary and just do the math on that. Two years wages versus two or three months wages. Now, neither of them had the money to pay him back. Like, even if you have a good job, I know, you know the wisdom says you're supposed to have six months of your salary in your bank account. How's that working for a lot of you, you know? Most of us don't. Now, neither of them had the money to pay them back, so at least not cash on hand. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. 
you have judged correctly, Jesus said. I, I have to believe there's some sarcasm in there. I don't know. But <laughs> then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. And this next part is crazy. You did not give me any water for my feet. That was common custom in this day. You're, it's a dirt road. There's no asphalt. You're not wearing Nikes, right? You have sandals on. You walk in. That was common custom. To not do so was an, an insult, an affront to your guest. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. That was common culture. You would kiss somebody on the cheek to welcome them. Um, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, which if you had money, if you were of means, like the host in this story, of course you would do that. But she has poured perfume, way more expensive, on my feet. So this is crazy. Um, you know, one of the reasons that, that the New Testament is actually, Jesus is actually quite funny at times, but the humor is lost. One, because of, you know, the translation from Aramaic to Greek to English, all of that. But two, because it's a very different culture and the primary form of humor was irony, which we don't really, we kind of get sarcasm, but not, we get sarcasm, but not, irony is a little bit different. This is a great example of irony. And it's funny, but in like a black comedy kind of way. The basic idea is that in this scenario, Jesus is over at the home of Simon the Pharisee, but Simon plays the role of the enemy and the prostitute plays the role of the host. The irony is thick. Hence, 47, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began, same thing, to gossip, whisper, backbite. Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. There's that language again, salvation. Go in peace, shalom in Hebrew, well-being from the inside out. Now, there's two stories that we just read about Jesus eating and drinking with, quote, sinners are the rule, not the exception to the rule. Those are two out of dozens in the four Gospels. Jesus was called a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And while I don't think Jesus was a glutton or a drunkard, still, we have to admit, he got that reputation somehow. If all you had was the Gospel of Luke, there are at least 50 references to Jesus and food in Luke again. Um, in Matthew that we're teaching through on again and off again, there are 94. In Luke, here's just a few of the highlights. In chapter 2, Jesus is born in a feeding trough as a way of saying he is food for the world. In chapter 5, he eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. In chapter 7, we just read that, he's anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In chapter 9, he feeds the 5,000. In chapter 10, he eats at the home of Mary and Martha. In chapter 11, he goes off and the Pharisees at a meal. In chapter 14, Jesus is at a meal when he calls all of his apprentices to invite the poor next time they throw a party. Chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son, which ends with a meal or a party. Chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who ate like a king and a poor man named Lazarus who's begging for scraps from the rich man's table. The story does not end well. In chapter 19, we read that Jesus invites himself over to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. Chapter 22 is the Last Supper or Passover. Chapter 24, Right after the resurrection, the first thing Jesus does is break bread with a husband and wife, two of his apprentices, and then he goes to the rest of his apprentices. One of the first things he says is, do you have any fish? 
apparently coming back from the dead just works up a little bit of an appetite, you know? <laughs> New Testament scholar Robert Karras writes, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> I like this Jesus. I want to apprentice under him, be with him, and become like him, and do what he did, right? <laughs> now, there's a thinker by the name of Tim Chester from the UK. It was this great little book out, A Meal with Jesus. It's in your recommended reading. It's short, easy to read. And he makes the point that this little verbal formula from Luke, the Son of Man came, is used not once, as I said, but twice. And once is about Jesus' mission. The other is about Jesus' methodology. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, end quote. That was Jesus' mission. That was what he came to do. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That was Jesus' methodology. That was how he did it. Jesus lived in a culture where a lot of people were hostile at arm's length toward him and his way into the kingdom. How did Jesus walk people like that into the kingdom? The short answer is one meal at a time. That was his method of evangelism, for lack of a better word. I have a love-hate relationship with that word. Um, it's not used anywhere in the New Testament, and so I'm, I feel free to kind of avoid it a little bit. I'm a bit allergic to Christian subculture, which is not a little ironic that I became, of all things, a pastor. So when I hear that word evangelism, it, it just... I feel a little icky because I think of like, and no offense if this is you, like the corner salespeople outside Powell's who are always trying to like get you to buy something for the environment or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? If that's you, God bless you. But there might be something else that God has for you in your future. <laughs> and in the meantime, I mysteriously have to like listen to a non-existent person on my phone every time I walk past you and smile um, on my way into Powell's. Well, I think of network marketing, which was a big deal back in the day with like Amway and like Tupperware, and now it's like reinvented itself with essential oils or whatever, which is great. I'm all for essential oils. I'm not for network marketing, where like you think you got invited over to dinner, and then like 30 minutes, there's like a pamphlet that comes out, and they're like, here's this, and actually you could do this too, and I make 100 grand a year, and if you work for me, it's like so, it's like, oh, that's gross, go take a shower. It's so, you just feel like a mark. It feels like a bait and switch. You don't feel love. You feel like there's an ulterior motivation, so on and so forth. And so a lot of us feel that way about evangelism. Like, are we just the corner salesperson? Is this just network marketing? Is this just the bait and switch? Come over for dinner. Actually, two minutes in, it's like, you know, if you were to die tonight, where, like, whatever <laughs> it is. So, okay, apparently I'm not the only one um, who's in therapy um, for all of that. And yet, listen, listen, set the cynic aside for a minute and listen. Jesus was constantly preaching the gospel, the good news, the message of the wide availability of the kingdom, the rule and the reign and the freedom and the healing and the order of life as God intended it to all, saying it's near, it's right. All you have to do is unlock the door of your heart and let God in. If Jesus had a method, and I forgive the crass language there, but if Jesus had a method of evangelism, 
Best I can tell from reading the four gospels, it was basically this. If you're with a bunch of conservatives or cultural Christians who already, for the most part, believe in the Bible and for the most part believe in God and have just kind of lost the plot line and need to come back to what deep down they already know is true, then stand up in front of a crowd, get as many people there as you can, and preach. But if you are with somebody who is on the margins, who has been hurt by the church or the family of God, had a bad experience in the past, just did not measure up, was born into the wrong home, the wrong scenario, the wrong moral or social or economic environment, somebody who for whatever reason wants nothing to do with organized religion, then here I think is a better option. Open your home. If you don't have one and they do, invite yourself over and get them to pay for the whole thing. (laughs) Eat a long meal, stretching into the night, Pour a bottle of wine if you're cool with that. If they run out of wine, just ask for water. You can make that work too. (laughs) Spend time with people that no good, upstanding religious leader would be caught dead with. Talk. And talk small talk. That's an expression of love. But talk about the meaning of life. And don't just talk. Ask questions. And listen. Really Listen, meet people right where they are at, not where you feel they should be. Love people and invite them to experience the life that is now normative for you in the kingdom. That's it. Now, this kind of eating and drinking with the lost, and we'll get to that language in a minute, is what the New Testament writers call hospitality. And this is a word we need to get back to. The word hospitality is philoxenian in Greek. It's a compound word. Philo means love. Think of Philadelphia, the birthplace of our nation, which coincidentally is based on the church in Revelation chapter 2 and the city of brotherly love. We all know what that means. But then xenos means stranger, foreigner, immigrant, refugee, outsider, or just guest. So think about it. Xenophobia is the opposite of hospitality. It is the fear or the phobia of the stranger, the outsider, the immigrant, the whatever. Hospitality is more literally, what it actually means is the love of the stranger, the outsider, the immigrant, the refugee, the guest. It's the welcome. Butterfield defined it as turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. I would define hospitality as expressing the welcome of God the Father to all through tangible acts of love, ideally through giving food, shelter, and relationship. But it's a bit hard to define because hospitality is first and foremost a heart posture that then leaks out of your life, your budget, your time, intangible acts. One of our worship leaders this morning, Maddie, was, saying, was telling me about her heart for hospitality and that she feels as a worship leader, that's what she is doing. Like she's practicing hospitality, the welcome of, and there's no food, right? Well, there's a little bit, but it doesn't count. There's no, like, there's no shelter, there's no candle, there's no whatever, but this is a way to express welcome. And followers of Jesus are commanded to continue this practice of hospitality, all through the New Testament. For example, Romans 12, 13, Paul writes, practice hospitality. The word practice there in Greek is diakontes. One lexicon defines it as, quote, to do something with intense effort and with a definite purpose or goal. It can be translated, be eager to show hospitality 
Or 1 Peter 4, Peter writes this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. I love that, but that sounds a bit sappy at times. How exactly? Well, offer hospitality to one another. And I love the add-on, without grumbling. For all of the introverts in that room like me, who when we say, stay as late as what you want, what we really mean is please leave in the next 10 to 15 minutes. <laughs> you know? Without grumbling, oh, here they come again. Oh, they never bring anything but chips and salsa for community and I or whatever. You know who you are, by the way. <laughs> you know who you are, all right? Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Your home, your apartment, your culinary ability, your time. As faithful stewards, that's all you are, stewards of God's grace, his generosity, his kindness, his favor in its various forms. Or I think of Hebrews 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, as family. How? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Later in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the practice of hospitality is on the job requirement and character quality list for elders or leaders in the church. You have to practice hospitality in order to lead up here or anywhere in the church. You know, I've heard of pastors being removed for heresy or an affair or funny business with money. I've never once heard a story of a pastor being removed for not practicing hospitality. Oh, a dirty secret came out. We found out the pastor has not had a neighbor over in three months. <laughs> right? He's out of here, right? No repentance or whatever it is. Church discipline. But it's right there on the exact same list. And we are commanded to carry on this practice from Jesus' life. And it's a great one. One of the things I love about this practice is it's so ordinary and yet so pregnant with potential. Rosiah Butterfield, on that note, who is a fascinating case study in all of this. If you know her bio, and she's in our recommended reading, um, she was basically a far-left, radical lesbian feminist also was a tenured professor at Syracuse University with a specialty in postmodern critical theory and literature, all right? So not exactly like prime candidate for the Jesus story. And she was writing a book on how Bible-believing Christians are basically the worst, how we are a threat and a menace to society. But as part of her research, she's an academic, quite bright, she had to actually meet a few Bible-believing Christians first. And um, she had written an editorial in the New York paper uh, that was a scathing indictment of this men's conference as everything she was against. And a local pastor wrote in a letter, and it was gracious, a response. And it was gracious and thoughtful, and it came with an invitation to dinner. So she thought, I have to do some research anyway. Might as well go over, right? And so she writes about, like, driving into, you know, his driveway there, sitting there thinking, am I crazy? He is the enemy. He is everything I am against. And then saying, all right, whatever. And she walks through the front door and she just writes about experiencing hospitality, experiencing love and love expressed as welcome over a meal and how it changed her life. She came back for dinner again and then again and then again. Then she came to Bible study. Then she came to small group. Then she came to church. Long story short, that was a number of years ago. She's now actually married to a reformed Presbyterian pastor outside Duke University. She's a foster parent and they run a Christian commune out of their house. And she's a great writer, quite bright. And her basic life message, near as I can tell, is this. The LGBTQ community does a way better job at hospitality than the church. 
And this is a practice that we need to recapture. We have heritage in, hundreds of years of church tradition in. Anyway, she writes this. Radically ordinary hospitality. And by the way, how great is that line? Radically ordinary hospitality. Let's steal it. Those, <laughs> those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. Liberal, conservative, democratic, Republican, gay, straight. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all. We'll talk about that next week. Some of you are planning to skip already. Um, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom, they open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. How great is that last line? The gospel comes with a house key. On a very similar note, Simon Carey Holt, who's an Australian chef turned theologian, writes this. It's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place. There's that word again. A place so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. At its base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation, providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. It turns out the gospel pairs really well with a Malbec or a fresh loaf of sourdough bread and a little homemade butternut squash soup, right? Now, just to make sure, and listen carefully, please, that we're all on the same page, because some of you are writing me off right now. I'll need to clarify that hospitality is not the same thing as entertainment. When I say hospitality, or when you read that in the New Testament, a lot of you, what comes to mind for a lot of you is if you're a bit older, Martha Stewart, right on the cover of the magazine with the 4,000 square foot house out in suburbia, and the, it's picture perfect, and there's an interior designer involved, and a formal dining room, and fine china, and it's all matching. Or a lot of you are younger, and whatever, like we think of the Portland export kinfolk, and like the 50-foot table dinner at night with the lights hanging over the top in the backyard, even there's only like three nights of the year that are warm enough for that. And there's like all these Swedish models at the table wearing, you know, muted linen with just a tasteful tattoo and a light makeup, just enough where you're not sure, are they wearing it, are they not? Kind of says I'm down to earth, but I'm sophisticated too. And I'm a feminist, but not too much. You know, it's that whole thing. <laughs> and again, that's honestly not to mock you, it's playful, I, but it's, it's not, nothing wrong with that. That's, if, uh, that's great. Um, <laughs> I'm tired, okay? I'm tired. Don't email me. But the problem is that version of hospitality, if that's what you think of by hospitality, it writes off the vast majority of us in the room. You can't do that if you are a student at PSU and live in a dorm or rent an apartment with three other 20-something guys who have yet to discover the miracle of making your bed in the morning <laughs> or you live in your mom's basement or you don't know how to cook or you're poor and you live off top ramen or food stamps 
or you don't have matching dishware yet, or it's plastic but not ceramic, or you're just not Swedish, whatever the problem <laughs> is. But that is not, listen carefully, that is not what the New Testament writers mean by hospitality. That's entertainment. To compare and contrast, entertainment is about exclusion. You invite the in crowd. In fact, you can kind of tell where you fall on the social hierarchy of who's who by the parties you do or do not get invited to. Hospitality is about inclusion. It's an open table where all are welcome. Entertainment is about performance. You show off your home, your culinary skills, the money you have to buy whatever wine, your circle of friends, who you know, where you live, your design. Hospitality is about service, tangible love. With entertainment, there's a clear line between host and guest. Hospitality blurs that line. It's what I love about the stories of Jesus at a meal. Wherever he went, Jesus was both host and guest. He always came to both give and to receive. That is the pattern. When you show up for your Bridgetown community on a Wednesday night, it doesn't matter if you live in your mom's basement and you go over to the same house every single week. You come as a host just as much as a guest. You come to contribute, not just to consume. I think of all of you involved, Megan's down here. I think of Refugee Care Collective. When you or you, your community together welcome a family to our city from Iraq or Somalia or wherever, and you go over to their home, it's their home, not yours, but you show up with a welcome kit or some furniture or some clothing or some food, you walk in, you play the role of the host to welcome, to spread out the welcome mat to our city and to our country. It's a great example of hospitality. I was watching somebody in the second row last hour patting the back of an infant out of the foster care system. That is an expression of hospitality. Entertainment is sporadic. You schedule it out weeks in advance. It's an event on a calendar. Nothing wrong with that, but hospitality is a way of life. It's regular, it's rhythmic. Sure, it's an event once in a while, but more than anything, it's spontaneous. It's an open door policy. Entertainment is an act of reciprocity. I have you over, and then it's your turn to have me over, right? We have that little phrase, like, you pay for lunch, wait, you got it next time, you pay next time, your house next time. That's fine, but hospitality is an act of generosity. You give and expect nothing in return because the giving is itself the gift. Entertainment on that note is a marker of the stratification of our society. You move up or down the social ladder one party at a time, whereas hospitality is about justice for the poor. Jesus said later in Luke to all of his apprentices, when you throw a party, in the NIV it's translated a dinner or a luncheon, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. Some of you are thinking, well, who do I invite then? If, if you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. I remember the first time I read that, I'm like, yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, homeschoolers like John Mark, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, New Testament scholars point out this was a radical shift in the society of the day. So hospitality was already a high value in the ancient Near East. Have you ever been to the Middle East? It still is to this day. But where Jesus made not a subtle tweak, but a radical overhaul was instead of aiming hospitality upward and as a way to curry favor with those ahead of your station, he aimed it downward as a way to serve and do justice for the poor, to bring others into the life that you enjoy. And that is what changed the world.
In fact, historians, we'll talk more about this next week, but argue this through the practice of hospitality. This is how the gospel spread at such a rapid pace from around Jesus' death and resurrection, around 120 people around a table in an upper room in Jerusalem, a tiny, not even a minority, a tiny sliver of a sect, of a sliver of a sect on the edge of the empire to three centuries later, it was the dominant, it was the new normal. Over half of the empire was in some way, shape, or form a Christian or a follower of Jesus to the point that toppling paganism, do you know anybody out there worshiping Zeus anymore? No. Toppling Caesar himself, and some people think the empire, because they were preaching that there is another Lord, not Caesar, but Jesus. There is another kingdom, not the Roman Empire. We think, most historians speculate that Constantine's conversion in the fourth century, which was kind of the beginning of the end for the Middle Ages, but was a political power play. It was because a persecuted minority had become a political majority, and he had a problem. Over half of his constituents were now, in some way, shape, or form, a follower of Jesus. He had to make it the official religion of the empire, and so on and so forth. How did this happen? With no internet, no sound systems, no church buildings, it was for the most part illegal, no religious freedom, no celebrity pastors, not a single follower on Instagram. How? The gospel spread from one home to the next, one table to the next, all over bread and wine. Is this coming into focus for you yet? Radically ordinary hospitality or the practice of eating and drinking, and I'll use those terms interchangeably, is central to the way of Jesus. It's not a a subcategory or an aside or another, it's central, it's right at the core. For hundreds of years, into the Middle Ages or even beyond, it was at the vanguard of, for lack of a better word, evangelism. Tragically, it's something that we have lost in the West. With our hyper-individualism, I do life alone with the suburbanization of city planning. Like I remember that from my suburban days. You like drive into your neighborhood after a long, hard day's work. You wave at your neighbor. And then our first house was this fixer up and you had to like open up the garage door, such a pain. But by the second one, we made a little sweat equity. We had a garage door opener. The introvert in me loved it. All I had to do was wave and smile and then pull in garage door up, in, close, onto Netflix. It was heaven on earth, right? And even, we think we're way better in the city, but we're really not. Even with the verticalization of urban planning, where more and more of us live not in a neighborhood, but in a hallway or around a courtyard, with the facade of online community, which I think is a bit of an oxymoron, with the rise of the megachurch, all sorts of reasons for it. But we've lost this, I think you would agree, as central to our way of life and apprenticeship to Jesus. What if we were to recapture it? What if we at Bridgetown Church and even beyond were to recapture radical, ordinary hospitality as central to our way of life? What if it was one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the, what if it was even like the main way, the first thing that kind of came to mind that we join Jesus in his quest to quote, seek and to save the lost? That is our imagination question for this next practice. Now, um, a few practical things. There are three dimensions to eating and drinking, or if you prefer, hospitality. Eating and drinking with the lost, that's what we're dealing with now. Eating and drinking with the family, by that I mean kind of church around a table or community. And then eating and drinking with the Father, by that I mean the Lord's Supper, or the bread and the wine. We'll talk about how it devolved from a meal around a table to a cracker and juice around a stage, and how it became a sacrament, what that means and does not mean. And we'll 
explore the possibility of a change to how we celebrate that week to week. Now, last thing before we wrap up, I just want to speak to this language a little bit. Some of us have mixed feelings about Jesus' language of the lost. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. By the way, welcome wherever you're at in faith or no faith or in between um, or like a lot of us, just questions. You're so welcome here. We're so happy that you're here. But maybe that's offensive to you. It just sounds like, what, are you saying I'm lost or whatever? Well, the more I think about Jesus' language, the more I love it. Jesus is amazing. He assumes the best about people. I just think about that. Lost people aren't immoral. Lost people aren't bad. Most lost people I know are kind of middle of the bell curve when it comes to morality. Lost people aren't in- unintelligent. Everybody gets lost at some point. Um, I get lost every time I travel. In fact, I get lost on a regular basis right here in our town, which is not very big. And lost people rarely want to be lost, with the exception of a few old school hippies in my neighborhood who are into it. Most lost people I run into are searching for the right path to the right destination. It makes sense that Jesus would call people who had yet to find his way into the kingdom lost. And Jesus himself said that he came from where? From heaven to earth, gave up all of that to, quote, seek and to save the lost, to open the door and spread out the welcome mat to the Father's house and invite people in off the street if need be to eat and drink around the Father's table and if they want to be adopted into the Father's family as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters. And he did that, how? By eating and drinking, one meal at a time. And I would argue that in our post-Christian culture, with all the hostility and busyness and noise, Jesus' way is still the best way, to walk people that we love into the kingdom. There's still no better way to get to know people than over a meal. There's still no better venue to dialogue and discuss and disagree and love and respect than over a meal. And because of that, I would argue there's still no better environment to share the gospel with the lost than over a meal. Why do we run Alpha? Why is the main way that we interface with people that don't, aren't in our community and don't follow Jesus, not here on stage, but because it's over a meal? It's about hospitality. It's a safe place to express the welcome and the love of God. That's it. It's all of this in action. I'm no evangelist. Um, It's a weakness in my life, not a strength. But T and I have spent the last five or six years learning this practice of hospitality. I'll talk more about our journey with it next week. But all of the best conversations I, and maybe your story's different, but for me, all of the best conversations I've ever had with people who don't follow Jesus about Jesus have been not around this stage, but around my table. Everyone. And the beauty of this practice is a few things. One, this is something you're already doing. You're here. You're not dead. That means you eat on a regular basis. (laughs) You already do this two or three times a day. That's 21-ish times a week where you have a chance to practice hospitality. Just take what you're already doing and repurpose it for the kingdom. Meet up with somebody for breakfast before you go to work. Grab a coworker on your lunch break. Walk down to a food cart meet up for a happy hour on the way home, invite a neighbor over for dinner, throw a block party on a weekend or a holiday like tomorrow. You don't need to add anything to your already over-busy schedule. Just unlock your front door. And the other wonderful thing about it is all of you can do this. All of you. All, every single one of you in this room 
Because we confuse hospitality with entertainment, we come up with so many excuses for why we can't do this or we can't do this now in this season of life. Excuses like, I live at home or in a dorm or with roommates or my apartment is a mess or I don't know how to cook or I'm not an extrovert or I don't like to entertain or I have little kids who go to bed early and need an exorcism once in a while. Um, <laughs> or or my home is too small, or our furniture is all like used Ikea stuff from Craigslist. Or we think of hospitality as a, a female role in our society, and, either, and we reject that, either for feminist reasons or because we're a guy and we think that's not for me or whatever it is. And most of our excuses are exactly that, excuses that are easily overcome. My house is a mess, so clean it. It's not that hard. Like, or at least tidy it up a little bit. I don't know how to cook. Do you have Wi-Fi or somewhere? Like, Google burrito bowl on YouTube. It's not that hard, right? Seriously, like, I, I've been learning to cook the last few years. I didn't like, I thought it was, I liked eating before, but I like, um, you know, I, I love cooking, and I'm not great at it, but I'm, I'm decent. I'm getting better each year. Like, you can learn how to cook. In fact, you can learn how to cook good, like an all you need is internet access, that's all. And like, you know, trial and error, like create space for trial and error if you're anything like me, right? Um, well, I got a roommate, well, kick your roommates out for a night or just like put on the video games and close the door and then do it, whatever. <laughs> my, my point is you don't need to put this off and, and you don't need a seminary degree and the answer to every hypothetical apologetics questions memorized. You don't need the picture-perfect family. You don't need a house at the formal dining room or the kinfolk table in your magazine with the, like the round lights over the top, not the pointy ones, the round ones, you know what I'm talking about. All you need is a table and it doesn't even have to be yours. Go out, find your Zacchaeus and invite yourself over. That's great. Just find a table, go out if you need to and just welcome, just express love in a tangible way through conversation and just sit back. No ulterior motivation, no agenda, no bait and switch. You be who you are. You love Jesus, you follow Jesus, that's who you are. And just be there and be present to the person in front of you, to the God in you, and just watch what God does over time. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.